Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut as we dash through this week's IT news. We're going to cover a new Trident ASIC with a neural net inference engine, VMware layoffs, more problems for Okta, financial results, and more. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. Your branches changed, your SD-WAN should too. Palo Alto Networks wants to show you how AI and ML are powering next-gen SD-WAN and SASE for the branch. SDX Central and Palo Alto Networks hosted an exclusive online event that shows you how next-gen SD-WAN and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. Go to SDX Central to get the link to this free event to see the replay or find the link in the show notes for episode 458 of Network Break. Uh, and stay tuned after the news. We're going to talk with Pliant. Network automation takes a variety of forms from individual scripts that handle specific tasks to workflows that have to be orchestrated across multiple devices and systems. On the TechBytes podcast, we talk with sponsor Pliant about its automation platform. Pliant helps you orchestrate across devices and domains with a low-code approach. These are APIs to automate and orchestrate across your infrastructure. All right, let's dive into the news. First, uh, Broadcom has announced a new ASIC in its Trident line. This is the Trident 5. It's a top-of-rack switch ASIC. It provides 16 terabits per second of switching bandwidth. It supports 100 gig to 400 gig ports to servers and 800 gig ports up to the spine. Um, I think what's really interesting about this new ASIC is Broadcom announced a new feature called NetGNT, which the company says is a machine learning inference engine that runs directly mm. on the ASIC. So customers can use this feature to create custom signatures or patterns to detect things like security issues or performance issues at the ASIC level and then take actions like dropping packets or adjusting QoS policies. Now, before we get into NetGNT, which is the highlight feature, as you said, um, there's a couple of small things. This is uh, 400 gig to the server, 800 gig to the spines, mm -hmm. which is, you know, not 800 gigs to the servers. If you want that, you need the Tomahawks and better. And so, I'll, and what normally happens with Broadcom is the technology starts in the in the Dune or the Jericho or the and then drifts down to the Tomahawk, and then drifts down to the Trident. Uh, but in this case. Um, some of the features here are actually net new, and it looks like they're actually starting at the bottom and going up, if uh -huh. that makes sense. It does, yeah. Which is kind of a, an interesting transition here. Um, the one, aside from all the usual things, you know, more capacity, uh, I think it's what, 16 terabits, 21 terabits or something like that? 16, 16. So it's not a 51 terabit chip, but this is top of rack. You're not going to need 51 terabits at top of rack. Yep. Uh, the big One of the big things here is that they're running a five nanometer processor here so this uses 25 percent less power as an asic not as well as as a switch so what that means is most of the time when you see you know the trident jumps from eight terabits to 16 you only need half as many you need one fifth as many switches because you don't need a you know you can get so much more capacity blah 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 and you right. get power savings by getting rid of the legacy switches right mm -hmm. but in this case what they're actually saying is because we got the process wa uh, walk down to the next level you're actually using 25% less power. The smaller the nanometers, the less power your chip uses or less power per transistor because you don't have to push so hard between the material. Um, on, but of course, what normally happens is the power increases because they put more chip, more transistors on the chip because they're having smaller and smaller die. But in this case, they've just shrunk the process and got a 25% less power out of this chip. All right, let's talk NetGNT. So this is what they call a general purpose neural network traffic analyzer. That's where the GNT comes from, general neural traffic analyzer. <laughs> and this is a, a module or a part of the chip fabric itself. It's inside the chip and it sits on the ingress pipeline and it's an, a line rate inferencing engine. So this is AI uh, acting at the edge of the network conceptually or in the switch. So it's line rate. You can be thumping through 16 terabits per second and this inferencing engine will be running code to recognize in the packets for traffic patterns. So what that means is you will 
have some packet analysis or collecting packet data out of your network, you'll be in somewhere outside of the network. You will do an AI, uh, you know, model generation, or you'll do a model training using a quantization, quantization algorithm, right? And then the results of that, you can then feed into the NOS to the NetGNT engine through the Broadcom APIs. And then that NetGNT AI inferencing engine will then run in silicon to recognize patterns in the packets as they flow through. That's not something I think we've seen before. I certainly haven't heard any of the other ASIC makers talk about this before. No, it's definitely new to me. Um, although I think it's important that we clarify um, Broadcom is not providing you with signatures or patterns that you can deploy and then run on this ASIC. You have to go and have your own data set and use an AI model and figure out what the um, patterns or signatures you want to apply. And then you can load that into this uh, neural inference engine uh, on the ASIC to do, you know, uh, recognize a pattern and take an action. So it's very much based on customer needs, uh, very custom to the customer and a lot of work on behalf of the customer to actually take advantage of this feature. Right. And, and this is different. So this is recognizing uh, patterns in the flows in the silicon, in the ASIC, right. and then it can dynamically create policy on the fly. So you could do things like ECMP load balancing. You can do uh, in-cast. You can detect in-cast events if you've trained the model correctly and you can, you've extracted from in-cast events where buffer spikes or buffer overflows are going to happen or when you could see an in-cast you can start issuing, initiating, issuing explicit congestion notification messages back to source hosts that they need to throttle because the network is going to drop packets. You know, we talked about uh, the Ultra Ethernet Consortium and the concepts of AI networking, and they were saying that you, in, in normal switches, you do it, uh, load balancing over the uplinks using flows. You say this flow goes that way, this flow goes that way. But if you're running 800 gigabit per second or even more, you could actually end up with a situation where one link is overloaded, but the other one is, you know, only at 50% load If too many, there's no load sharing of this. So what you have here is a function which can then do um, ECMP load sharing of flows. So you could actually go in here, recognize a flow situation where the flow is going to exceed the upstream bandwidth and then start distributing a single flow. Normally in the ASIC, you pattern match on the header and you say, if I see this and you do a ZOR across the source and destination and the port address, and you say, well, this is a unique flow. And then you say, yeah, then you do a ZOR and you say, pick one of the one, two, three, four, eight, whatever it is, ECMPs up spine. And then all of that flow goes the same path so that it gets uh, the same latency and the same jitter, single path. You don't want that in AI networking. You want to do something different. And so this is the technology that I think Broadcom is going to say, this is its AI networking. This is how you're going to do it. You're going to put these AI chips in there and somebody who knows who is going to load a model that will detect these things for you. Yeah, my take is that they're aiming this more at a typical Ethernet switching environment. It's not really a competitor to the Jericho 3 AI ASIC, which has built-in optimizations specifically for building that Ethernet-based uh, fabric for AI workloads. Um, it's more about if you've got some specific use case and you have the chops and the data scientists uh, to build for that use case, we can run this uh, right at the ASIC level uh, so you can do very fast detection and very immediate response to issues. Uh, like yeah. you said, in-cast is an example they gave and DDoS detection is an example they gave. Again, yeah. they're not providing these features for you. You have to do it yourself. It's just that this chip yeah. can support that capability using this neural inference engine that's on the ASIC itself. Yeah, but still an interesting way of showing that how ASICs, I've sort of expressed some dubiousness around whether you can do this type of stuff in the network in the past. I've said you have to do something with the DPU mm -hmm. in 
we talked a lot about last week about how NVIDIA is using Spectrum X, which is they're using the Bluefield 3 DPU on the Spectrum 5 Silicon, and they're tightly integrating the two using RDMA. This isn't RDMA or the SmartNIC solution. This is saying we've got a function inside of the ASIC that you can now use, Mr. Vendor. Right. Or if you're, uh, and I believe in the briefing, he actually said we have 10 customers who are cloud companies who are actively writing code for this today. Mm-hmm. So, and and keep in mind, Drew, that the you know when we talked about the the Jericho AI, that's a very different chip to this one. This is top of rack, and what you're trying to solve there is top of rack problems, which is in cast buffer overflows, upstream load balancing, those types of issues. Whereas Jericho AI is going to be this is an AI switch. You're doing mass data transfers that yep. need to be synchronous between hundreds or thousands of servers completely different sort of, they still have the same problems with in-cast and so forth, but they're going to be very different in the way that they handle it. This is much more transient micro events like a buffer overload because there's a spike, you know, a data spike or a data shock or something like that, in my view anyway. Right. Jericho AI is pur- purpose built for those, uh, for building Ethernet fabric to run AI workloads where this is just a general purpose chip that, hey, I mean, it's very fast, but you can do interesting things with it if you have the capability to build uh, signatures or patterns uh, that this chip can then go and recognize. Yeah, well, you can also do load balancing or threat detection. Yep. Right. Yep. So you want to do that at the edge. You don't want to do that in the core, or you don't want to do that inside your AI cluster. You want to do it where your normal servers are. You know that are running everything else. So I think this is an AI engine designed for a different purpose. Yeah, and I think Broadcom made it clear that this Net GNT feature is really a test of the market to see if there's an appetite for this kind of capability, which may be one of the reasons they didn't bother releasing any kind of you know, built-in capacity or features that you could use out of the box. It's like, we made this available. If you want to use it, go ahead and try it. It takes a lot of work on your part, but if there's an appetite for it, maybe they'll expand it to other chipsets as well. Well, they did talk about um, they do ship software with it for a bunch of standardized functions, load balancing, DDoS, and so forth. DDoS, but DOS. And so it is interesting in that sense. And keep in mind, we talked about, uh, we did a show recently with Nokia talking about their DDoS engines inside of the um, FCP silicon. And how they're able to do, you know, terabits per second of DDoS protection inside mm-hmm. of the WAN network. So this this type of approach, you know, Broadcom's trailing the market a little bit here, if you want to look at it that way. But they did say that they do actually write software for common use cases, and you can just take it and add it to your existing NOS. So if you're running your own NOS or you you have a NOS where you can add software features to it and you know how to do that, then Broadcom has already pre-written a number of these that you can take. And they are taking requests from customers to add new features. That doesn't mean that they'll implement them, but it means that if you're, <laughs> read between the lines, if you're big enough and ugly enough <laughs> that is spending enough money, they will talk to you about writing the code and then adding it to the code if you want a specific feature that they think might sell to other clients. Exactly. Hmm. All right, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it. Uh, we're going to stick with Broadcom for the next story. Uh, Reuters is reporting the company is going to lay off uh, 1,300 VMware employees now that the Broadcom VMware acquisition is complete. Uh, Reuters also says the two business that two businesses inside VMware, this is Carbon Black and End User Computing, are being placed under, quote, strategic review. Yeah, so rumors, scuttlebutt. <laughs> Speculation, yes. Speculation of all sorts. But first of all, uh, I guess a shout out to all the people who lost their jobs last week. Uh, it's very difficult when you're a salary slave to often find hope in this situation. And you might feel just before Christmas, you're getting shafted yes. and you'd be right. Um, it's definitely <laughs> the worst yes. time. Yes. Yeah. Right. However, it should be noted, don't be too sorry for these people. They are getting massively good deals to get the hell out. Um, they're not being stiffed at all by Broadcom. Corporate is paying a fairly generous severance package from all that I've heard. 
So no need to shed too many tears for them. Um, people, These people will be able to find jobs, I would imagine, unless you've got a particular problem or specific requirements. VMware did have about 38,000 employees at the time of the acquisition. Keep in mind that VMware had already laid off a few thousand before this, Drew. Remember we were talking about this about a month ago? Uh-huh. And so now they're laying off another 1,300. That's just in Silicon Valley. And what they're actually doing is closing down the office in San Francisco and forcing all the workers to relocate to Palo Alto. And even more so, they must return to the office. So Hock uh-huh. um, Tan, apparently uh, on a leaked recording from an internal meeting, told his employees that remote work does not exist at Broadcom. Employees within 60 miles of a Broadcom office must come into the office. Oof. Yeah. So, whew. If you're in San Francisco and been working in the VMware office there in central San Francisco, now you've got to get up that highway to the Palo Alto office. <laughs> that is miserable. You're, that is miserable. <laughs> you were uh, you probably gonna wish that you had taken the uh, taken the redundancy package at this point. But what I also point out is that the European layoffs haven't started yet. I think we're looking at something like about twenty thousand twenty percent of employees are going to get cut in the early stages. I would expect to see seven to ten thousand people go, and. So far, we've seen about four, three, four thousand in the US, which is easy. Everybody can be fired over there at whim. It seems there's not too much protection against employers, you know, getting rid of you. But in Europe, they have to start negotiations, and now that process has started. So I'd expect to see another two or three thousand go from Europe as well. Yeah. So this isn't, you know, keep in mind that this is not a one and done. And I also think the Broadcom takes the approach of it's better to fire you now and get everybody out than it is. And then hire you back. So if they fire you and then decide that, oh, we should have kept that person or whatever, then that's what they would have they would they would rather do that than vice versa. I mean, I'm sure the approach of let's just pull the band-aid off as fast as possible, you know, while it stinks if you're one of the people being pulled off, yeah. at, at least get it done instead of just like sort of hanging around for months like wondering, what is my role here? What is my status? It's I'd rather I know, even though like, getting laid off stinks, I'd rather know. Uh, I think Broadcom probably looks at this as more like lancing a boil or draining a cyst. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, uh, a much they, grosser no, metaphor, but yes. Yeah, but you know, they see VMware as a bloated, uh, you know, overloaded, you know, too many employees, too much going on, too mm-hmm. much wasted effort, and they're going to lean it out substantially. Um, certainly, the the thing that this is something that they usually do. So Broadcom, you know, I was reading on various pieces of forum, but you know, they cut deeply, they cut out middle management really, really harsh. They cut the sales and marketing functions down to the absolute minimum. And basically, instead of having like global marketing or portfolio marketing, they just have product managers, which is pretty bad because what happens is those product managers don't cooperate. So what we don't see is integration between the business units, which is what, uh, which can cause a lot of problems, saves a lot of money, but it does cause problems when, you know, the customers using multiple products might suddenly find that this product manager doesn't know about this product over here, or there's no unification or integration, you know, uh, east-west integration between products. So that's what it is. But and then keep in mind that VMware is also going to be able to hand its property portfolio into the Broadcom property portfolio. So there is some savings there. Broadcom does say that it's substantially increasing the research and development. I think they said they're going to increase it from $1.3 billion to $3 billion. So huh. they're really going to invest in growing the products in certain markets. So that is a fairly clear statement um, uh, in, in their growth and their intention is to finally make VMware's vCloud foundation work, is my opinion. Uh, there's a few other things that they could do, um, and we'll talk about those in a minute. One, one thing I want to touch on before we get back to that, Drew, is resellers and partners are particularly frustrated. There is a lot of complaining sounds. 
um, because apparently a lot of deals are now frozen. Cust- like if you're a reseller mm. and you're moving into Christmas, you're expecting, and if you're a customer and you've got a project that was supposed to be done by Christmas, right? Right, right. And you're sitting on a VMware enterprise licensing deal or a TLA, you know, an ELA or a TLA, you've got a problem because they're not signing off on any of those right now until, you know, and if your sales rep suddenly been ditched out the door, who do you contact to drive the deal through to get the purchase order raised and get it done before Christmas because you've got your own internal. So there's well, a fair it, bit of complaints. And if you're it, a reseller, you're not like going to get your numbers, you know. Yeah. And it does sound like Broadcom may be aware of that because in the uh, blog post that Hawk Tan wrote announced at the completion of the uh, acquisition, he did explicitly say, we are going to increase our work with resellers and partners. So uh, maybe they are hearing yeah. those noises and understand, yeah, we got to move on this. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm never quite sure if that's something that he says because he means it <laughs> or as he says, because he doesn't want his partners to shaft him in the next quarter. Sure. That's, <laughs> you know, well, yeah. words are just words until we actually yeah, see right. actions. Yes. And CEOs, a lot of the time, I mean, exceeding, excluding clowns like Elon Musk, who say whatever the hell they want, <laughs> you know, the CEO isn't going to stand up and say, too bad, partners, suck <laughs> us, you resellers. Yes. You won't hear uh, that Hot from is typical not, CEOs. Yeah. Elon Musk will do it just because of, you know, because he's a clown. But, you know, Hoctan, CEO of a Broadcom, a publicly listed company, not an independently a multi-multi-billionaire in his own right. <laughs> Isn't going to stand up and just tell the partners and resellers, you know, too mm-hmm. bad for you. But it's definitely VMware's competitors are definitely circling. Um, like Nutanix is out there offering free side grades. You know, if you don't like this, if you want to get rid of VMware's vSAN, here, migrate to ours and we'll do it for free. We'll give it to you, right? So you can get away. So there's definitely something that I, I think the pressure is on Broadcom to make this clean and quick. But uh, doing it before Christmas does feel a bit hard on hard on everybody. Uh, in the Western world, because Christmas is a time when there's quite a few less days in the in the quarter, in the month, and so forth. Right. Um, um, we talked earlier about you know VMware uh, shedding employees and also potentially shedding business units. Uh, Carbon Black and End User Compute uh, are both came up uh, for being under review. Um, I, I was surprised to see Carbon Black on there because again, in Hawk Tan's uh, post, he emphasize security being essential uh, to VMware success. Uh, Carbon Black is the endpoint security product, uh, but I suppose if they are maybe planning to ditch end-user computing, endpoint security would also go. Yeah, like I sort of thought about that, and I think Carbon Black might have substantial overlap with the semantic and CA portfolios. Yep, definitely Uh, semantic. And keep in mind that the cybersecurity market is very buoyant right now, Drew. So you could take Carbon Black as a stand... They couldn't sell semantic back to the market probably, but they could certainly get rid of Carbon Black and make a compelling pitch to say, here, go and buy Carbon Black and get a couple of billion dollars for that. Right. 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 Uh, and that would be good cash to come into the bottom line, get rid of a lot of headcount, and they've already got a cybersecurity, so you just go through some research and development to then integrate it into the existing products, unpick Carbon Black from NSX and so forth. Not a big dig thing to do. I don't think Carbon Black has been hugely successful for VMware. I don't think they've really given it enough focus or got it tightly integrated here. And the end user compute, you know, the VMware horizon, the thin client type of stuff. Uh-huh. I don't, I think Broadcom might want to ditch that again because it's not a growth market. Like the synergies between VMware, the cloud computing company, uh, you know, and the and the end user compute product are a bit thin. They're not there. Yep. And, but I, I imagine that it's a, probably a reasonably solid revenue generator. So it's got a nice tight business generates profits, solid revenue, predictable revenue. But, you know, if you threw $500 million at it, would you actually grow the business by $2 billion? No. 
but customers who've got it, they want it. So you could take that business, hand it out, you know, at 10x from, you know, 10x profits, you know, today from from the gross, from the uh, net profit margin and pocket that money and use that to pay down the debt you've taken on with VMware. So yeah, that makes sense if 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 you follow that logic. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I'm guessing they looked at, you know, how many carbon black licenses have we sold versus how many Symantec licenses do we have out there? And I'm guessing Symantec licenses were probably a bigger number. So they're like, all right, carbon black can go. Yeah, makes sense to me. Like, you know, I think if the logic holds anyway, yeah. perhaps carbon black hasn't been successful as is. Yeah, and Greg, you also uh, had an angle on uh, what this might mean for uh, networking for non-Broadcom folks <laughs> like Cisco. <laughs> well, this is where you get into speculation, right? There's okay. no, you know, you think to yourself... What could Broadcom do that, you know, would justify a massive increase in research and development? Well, obviously, the first one is to make VMware Cloud Foundation work, overhaul the APIs, you know, eliminate the the lack of integrations between the two, make the whole thing, the integrations between ESX and vSAN, you know, make it work sustainably. Um, keep in mind that you've got VeloCloud out there. So they made the VeloCloud acquisition and a bunch of uh, acquisitions around AI operations as well. None of those have really taken the market by storm. Could they go back and have another look at that and try and make that work? But I think the angle here is what happens to companies like Cisco? And keep in mind that today Broadcom has chips in the underlay, you know, in the in the switches, and somebody else assembles those into switches and then distributes them. They have NSX in the data center, Velo Cloud for SaaS, and Broadcom could decide that it's a much more of a competitor against Cisco. Cisco's got a large market. It's got huge profit margins, 65% gross margins. It's ripe for the picking. It's not innovating. It's not changing. And there is a good story where VMware is already entrenched inside the customer. You could flip Cisco's networking business in the data center to NSX. What if NSX started to replace ACI or Juniper Abstra or one of the intent-based networking? If your NSX is doing managing the switches directly, and keep in mind that an average enterprise data center is... 95% of Ethernet ports in a data center are connected to VMware servers, right? Uh -huh. So your need for independent networking, which is why you want to run an eVPN core, you know, is because you've got servers that aren't and you need to do some management of that. But from what I hear, most people just don't use that because they've only got like 30, 40, 100 ports that actually aren't in the VMware cluster. Maybe they go off and talk to a storage array or whatever. But increasingly, you know, Broadcom could make a move here because Cisco is such an easy target, and even if they'd lost Cisco as a customer for ASICs, which is unlikely, by the way, but potentially, um, they might be more profit in actually going head-to-head -head with companies like Cisco or other companies in that space, right? VMware was always seen as a Swiss neutral. It had to work with Dell. It had to work with HP. It had right. to work with Cisco. And if it aligned too closely to any – but that's broken. Dell bought that. They popped that cherry on that one when Dell bought them but left it working in the open. Does Broadcom say, well – why don't we just make NSX work best with our ASICs and go off and buy a switch, which is on an approved list, which is what we already have today. And then lo and behold, boom, they take over the, the whole data center stack as well. It is interesting that you know, now that Broadcom does own VMware, they are now competing with a lot of their customers. They are competing with Cisco. They are competing with Juniper in the data center in terms of ACI and uh, Juniper Appster. They are competing in SD-WAN uh, against both of these companies. So it does, I think, make that relationship a little bit more uncomfortable. I think Broadcom would not mm -hmm. be very happy if Cisco was like, okay, we're walking away from this ASIC deal. I think it would be hard for Cisco to do that. But, you know, mm. Cisco also has some leverage being such a big shipper of boxes uh, that run Broadcom chips. So, yeah, there's going to be some interesting tensions here. 
it's pretty weak in the data center. Arista's been eating their lunch. <laughs> you know. Right, but yeah, that's true. I guess an Arista doesn't necessarily have a dog in the uh, you know NSX ACI fight. They don't care. They'd be happy to sell you the box, and you can run whatever overlay on top of it you want. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. if, if NSX talks directly to Arista's EOS, you know, you go, right? <laughs> I don't think yeah, they'd be too upset about that at the end of the day. And keep in mind that VMware has a very large presence in the 5G RAN telco market. So they've been very big at saying, if you're going to run a 5G pop, use VMware underneath that. And then, of course, underneath that, you've got a bunch of switches. Why, you know, and and we've seen various of the brand vendors get in there and say that we're pitching for these types of, you know, we should be selling you the switches and the routers. Well, if you've got a Broadcom ASIC somewhere, they want to just use NSX to do that for you. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, SASE, SD-WAN, VMware's got all of that. And that pitches Broadcom directly in the face of Cisco and Juniper and HPE if it starts uh, getting traction around there. So there are some tensions here and could be very disruptive to the networking industry if you know, the leading market player in Wi-Fi and Ethernet chipsets for servers and PCs and for the leading manufacturer of ASICs in the market today suddenly decides that it wants to get in between those two stacks in the software stack, in the WAN and in the data center. What does that look like? Right. Yeah, and maybe that's where potentially uh, regulatory issues could arise. Uh, but yeah, interesting times as this deal yes. has now completed. Maybe that's the synergy where they can justify the extra revenue going head to head with Cisco or HPE in the in the SD WAN market yeah. uh, or the SASE market because that would be really interesting. Yeah. All right, lots of links in the show notes if you want to mull over those kind of things yourselves and move on. Uh, More bad news for identity provider Okta. The company has disclosed that hackers were able to steal the names and contact details of every user of Okta's customer support system. Uh, This is an update to the scope of a breach that Okta reported in April, in October. It also looks like the attacker was able to run and download a report that, according to an Okta blog post, quote, contained the names and email addresses of all Okta customer support system users, all Okta workforce identity cloud and customer identity solution customers are impacted. Uh, the ones not affected in this breach are the company's FedRAMP high and DOD ILL4 environments, but otherwise this is bad. <laughs> so not affected are FedRAMP and DOD because they demanded to be on completely separate infrastructure, <laughs> right. probably, right? Yeah, that's exactly why, <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> yeah, that works, right? So rule number one, that works if you're big enough and ugly enough, run on separate infrastructure, have a separate customer support, and guess what? It works better. I think there's three things that you could take away from this, and you have to choose which one you like, or maybe all of them. Um, one is that Okta knew that the breach was larger than they had previously disclosed, they chose to downplay the severity, and that's something that they've done before. All the previous, I'm thinking of the last two breaches that Octus had, they sort of tried to downplay them, and then in the weeks afterwards, they got worse and worse. So is it that they're playing a PR game by by leaking the bad news in pieces, and they think that's worse than saying, hey, we got totally owned, Easter, you know, <laughs> everything was gone, uh, and they did a PR thing? A second choice is that Okta is just incompetent and that their incident response is incapable of knowing how bad an incident is right, is they just don't know. And it takes them far too long. So they they rush out a report saying, we think this is what it's at. They keep rolling the incident response and doing the analysis of what actually got owned. And then they find out how bad it was. I'm kind of into that one as well. And then the last one is that their management doesn't want to hear the bad news. So the salary slaves are all fearing for their lives and sending messages to the executives like, you know, the, the executives are saying something like, how bad is it? It's good. It's going to be okay, isn't it? And they say, well, so far what we've found is this. And the executives rush off and go public with this without actually asking how bad could this be? Do we need to wait? You know, so forth and so on. And keep in mind that every time Okta publishes um, 
you know, that Okta's been found vulnerable. It's been found vulnerable by its customers after, not not from Okta itself. Okta has never been able to discover this. So I think somewhere in between all three, <laughs> maybe all three. Yeah, I think the, the first announcement around the HAR files, which had, um, you know, session credentials that could be exploited, uh, that was the biggest, you know, red light siren emergency because that was an exploit that could happen immediately. Uh, this, you know, contact information, which could be used for, you know, phishing or social engineering, still dangerous, but not the flashing red light of the, you know, here are session credentials that could let me get into your uh, identity network and start stealing even more credentials. So I assume that's why that came out first. Uh, in the blog post, they do note how the incident response team doing continuing analysis sort of were able to eventually piece this together. So I'm I'm, I'm going with number two on your menu that uh, it was just a slow and uh, maybe we'll say more deliberate incident response process that was able to winkle this out that this had actually happened. But certainly I'm sure executives were like, oh God, do we have to say this too? This is just going to look yeah. so awful. I think the incompetence is pretty widespread. I think, you know, they they feel the pressure and instead of resisting the pressure and saying, look, we just don't know, we want to wait until we've got a comprehensive response. They ship something that says, we think only 1% of customers are you know, and they shouldn't, right? They should sit there and say, we don't know. It'll take weeks. Of course, they'll look bad, but I think they look pretty bad already. They've had multiple breaches. If you're a Okta customer, you've really got to be thinking to yourself, it's time to go. And on, on the evidence in front of you, it, it would suggest that staying there for much longer is going to be a problem. Yeah. Uh, it's only are, a matter of time till the next breach, in my opinion. If you are an Okta customer, uh, we have a link in the show notes to that blog I just mentioned. And that blog also has a list of actions that they recommend you take to protect protect your credentials, particularly administrator credentials, uh, a whole list of them. Uh, so go check it out if you are uh, hearing yeah. this and going, I, mm -hmm. I think maybe only 1% of their customers were actually breached, but the whole database was basically gone. <laughs> they horrible. Right. 100% you know, of your customers' contact names and emails is not not a great look for identity service no, provider. But yeah. it's not it does not mean that they got logins into 100% of customers' No, sites. no, 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 no. But the potential for phishing or social engineering is increases dramatically uh, when attackers have that kind of information. Yeah, that's right. Yep. All right. A quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. Your branches changed. Your SD-WAN should too. Join Palo Alto Networks to see how AI and ML are powering next-gen SD-WAN and SASE for the branch. As businesses focus on driving the next growth phase, business transformation has become a key priority for IT leaders. Critical industries such as finance, retail, healthcare, and manufacturing rely on a network of branch offices to serve their customers well. The newly established trends of hybrid work, digital-first customers, and accelerated cloud adoption are forcing organizations to rethink their branch IT strategy. SDX Central and Palo Alto Networks hosted an exclusive online event earlier this year. You can get the full replay of the event to see how NextGen SD-WAN and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. Go to xdxcentral.com to get the link to sign up for the replay. All right, back to the news. Cisco Systems has shipped a million dollars worth of modified industrial Ethernet switches to Ukraine to help the country's electricity grid better withstand electronic warfare attacks by Russia. Russia's apparently been jamming GPS signals, uh, which not only, you know, for uh, air attacks, but also disrupts time signals that the Ukrainian grid operators rely on to balance power loads, especially when substations or power lines go down because of bombings or missile attacks. Uh, CNN's reporting that Cisco has provided modified Ethernet switches that use internal clocks to provide critical timing information that doesn't rely on GPS. Uh, I was fortunate enough to work in the power generation and the power distribution industries for a few years, and I spent a lot of time working on time. <laughs> <laughs> see what I did there? I see what you see did what there. I... <laughs> yes, tip of the hat there. Um, and it's quite key because um, AC power, of course, is a 50 to 60 hertz sine wave, and the power must be sent to the grid in phase. 
And if you fail to send the power into the grid, so if you're generating or extracting from the grid, you have to work quite quite hard to make sure that everybody's sending into the grid at exactly the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a bunch of things around events. Events are triggered at a certain time. And if you can't trigger them at exactly the same time, then that's a problem, right? And in the past, time signals actually used to be sent on a physical cable. So they used to be like in the power distribution lines, there's a cable at the top called the ground wire. And inside there was a cable, usually a fiber optic, that would actually carry a time signal, which was how they synchronized hmm. the entire grid. Mm-hmm. But uh, what we saw more recently is the emergence of hyper-accurate single silicon clocks that were synchronized via satellites or radio. So you actually have, you can go and buy these. They're quite cheap. They're five to $10,000. It's a box that you put into a rack and you have a little antenna that goes up to the roof and it pulls a time signal from a satellite somewhere in you know a satellite or a radio signal sometimes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. depending on your poison and that's how you get the time so if you're getting um, denial of service by a russian electronic warfare unit which is transmitting a signal that's sort of like 150 to 200 kilometers you've got a problem because you may not be getting absolutely accurate and i mean at 50 to 60 hertz we're talking you know very very accurate timing that's needed for synchronizing of the power grid and uh I also think here that um, it's great to see Cisco responding with specific products, Drew. I think, you know, we could all get feel goods about this and say, oh, it's fantastic that Cisco's responding. Yes. Uh, But I'd also point out in an era of heightened geopolitics and acts of civilian sabotage that maybe having this as a standard feature in the years ahead would be a good thing. So um, Cisco can use this as a unique product feature and claim that it's been proven in Ukraine. Uh, While helping Ukraine, it's also helping itself. So you choose. Is it a win-win? where Ukraine wins and Cisco wins, or you can see it as self-interested. You know, you pick your side on that one. Sure. Well, it's the holiday season, so I'll go with a win-win where everybody gets right. a little bit. All right. We're all, we're upbeat today. We're having a good one. <laughs> and around the eggnog. Yeah. Cheers I mean, to I all. think Cisco's entry into industrial Ethernet is great for the company because it's a market that is ripe for good networking. And Cisco can get in there, and it's very difficult for competitors to enter that space. And it would be able has a history of making products that do you know like it used to charge thirty or forty thousand dollars for a branch router that could work at up to minus twenty degrees and work in you know halfway up Mount Everest sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. Not something everybody needed, you know. Right, <laughs> so right. <laughs> if you, they've got the chops, you know, the industrial capabilities to do that. They have a history of manufacturing products on that sort of a basis, and uh, I think it's good that Cisco's getting into that. Although it does draw them away from their core business some, to some extent. Yeah, I'm I'm in the mood for a feel good networking story, so I'm just gonna go with the out of the goodness of their hearts, they did this. Ah, Christmas story. Look at that for Christmas. All right, it is the first of December, by the way. I just want to point that out. That's right. That's the first of December. You're allowed to start talking about Christmas. Not my biggest thing in the world. Absolutely. But not in November. First of December, it's allowed. (laughs) We have passed the bar. We're all set. Passed the bar. Yeah. You can drag out, you can defrost uh, Mariah Carey and, and you're going to have to put up with the squealing sounds, you know. <laughs> All right. Uh, two stories to go before we wrap. Uh, they're both financial results. First, Dell released its Q3 2023 financial results. The company brought in $24.7 billion in revenue, down 6% year over year, and net income of $241 million. Uh, by business units, uh, server and storage revenues were robust, up 14% and 11% respectively compared to last year. Uh, by contrast, revenue for the client solutions group was down 17%, including customer revenue, uh, consumer revenue, which dropped 29%. So in other words, it looks like Dell selling a lot of server and storage, but slow PC sales have dragged down overall results. Yeah, I, I did a poke through the uh, analyst call, the, the transcription of the analyst call. Mm-hmm. They made a big hoo-ha about AI-optimized server mix increased 33% of total server orders, 
driven by strong demand from AI-focused cloud providers. This is Jeff Clark, Chief Operations Officer. Mm -hmm. uh, we drove improved demand margins, increased services attached, and incremental unstructured storage over the course of the quarter. So we talked about why are we seeing so much hype around AI from the brand vendors when really it's limited to just a few you know, specific spots. Um, but, you know, Jeff Clark says our AI optimized server backlog nearly doubled versus Q2 with a multi-billion dollar sales pipeline with increasing interest across all reasons. And AI hype is everywhere. We need to be measured in our expectations. Um, so basically there's money to be made. Driven. That's why. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's not just the enterprise. There's people out there who are buying these servers by the container load from the looks of it. Um, and then he went on to say about the uh, the falls in the consumer market. He says, I think eight quarters of decline, an aging install base and an installed base of greater than 1.5 billion units, 750 million of them over four years and 300 more, 300 million more coming next year. So that will be aged to become four years old, which is time to upgrade. So they're saying that a lot of laptops that were sort of bought early in COVID cycle, Drew, I'm guessing four years ago since pre-COVID times. Yeah, approximately, yep. Approximately. So they're saying everybody rushed out, bought a bunch of laptops, and now they're all ready for a refresh. We think they're hopeful that they're going to be upgraded because people need to run AI workloads at the edge. <laughs> so, uh, oh, and the other thing is too, that Windows 10 maintenance is expiring. So if you've got a laptop with Windows 10 on it, uh, if Windows 10 expires, a lot of companies or a lot of people will go out and buy a Windows 11 laptop. So they're hopeful that they'll get something out there. Yeah. So we talked last week about NVIDIA doing having stocking results and basically driven by GPUs. And of course, that also plays with the server vendors who package up those GPUs to sell them uh, to companies. So yeah, that's clearly clear in Dell's results. And it sounds like Dell anticipates pretty good growth uh, for the next couple of quarters related to these GPU uh, sales, but uh, also cautioning that this is a gold rush and sometimes gold rushes peter out. So <laughs> don't expect this to be a permanent feature. Yeah. So their share price is going to drop back to where it was, or oh, I don't know, sometime in September. They had a big spike in September where the numbers jumped a lot. Uh, the, the share price is down, you know, five bucks, 10 bucks today. I expect it'll fall away a little bit because the market is really punishing companies who don't meet their promised targets right about now. Mm -hmm. So very interesting. Oh, here's another thing I just noticed for you. Um, Dell has a market capitalization of $54 billion, by the way. Okay. That's less than VMware. Which less was than VMware. Billion. Which is interesting. Although there is that acquisition, you know, that adds a little bit of a, a pump to that price. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But yep. interesting, an interesting data okay. point. And one minor factoid uh, Dell is very public about the take up of its AMD and ARM CPUs on the call. The analysts mm. were asking mm -hmm. questions, and the CIO was saying, like, we're very excited about <clears> our growth in AMD and ARM CPUs. We're talking a little bit about how Intel is struggling in the future. And it's not necessarily the only player in this market anymore. I think the, although AMD is pretty well known at this point, interesting that ARM gets a mention in the same breath as AMD and Intel. It is. It is. Mm. Yep. So I think you're going to see a lot more in that space. Dell, of course, is a, is a strong supplier to the cloud business, tier two, tier one cloud companies, usually via non, you know, they make them and deliver them. They don't badge them as Dell servers uh, quite often. Um so I think um, the rise of the ARM CPU seems assured going forward, yeah. especially given that ARM's trying to go for an IPO soon. Um, uh, if I'm SoftBank and I'm trying to get some ARM shares out onto the market and get a good price for them, maybe, maybe I want to run up that. You know, maybe I want to 
get some special deals out there at this point in time. Yes. Our last story for the day, chipmaker Marvell also announced Q3 2023 financial results. The company brought in revenues of $1.4 billion, down 8% year over year with a net loss of $164 million. The company said it had strong growth in the data center with revenues there up 20% compared to the previous quarter with, quote, strong growth from AI and cloud carrying us through a softening demand environment in other end markets. So there's that magic AI again. Yeah, well, you know, and I don't really see how Marvell's AI story is particularly compelling, but then I don't think Marvell is a particularly compelling chip maker. I think if I read what I read from the analysts, I do sort of track Marvell. They're not doing anything, you know, blow up exciting that's going to, you know, make a splash. They're a, they're a very stable, very predictable chip maker, you know, producing chips and iterating at a predictable rate. Um, they've got markets in the fiber channel, in the Ethernet, you know, in the Wi-Fi, yep. a bunch of data pumps, you know, all that sort of stuff. They've got a whole wide portfolio there. But um, I think the main problem that they have is they just don't quite have the marketing chops that NVIDIA and Broadcom do. Uh, right. Broadcom makes sure that they got the, you know, the customers know that there's a Broadcom inside. <laughs> the asset. When right. there's a Broadcom, they know, right? And it's on the NIC, it's on the whatever. NVIDIA, of course, is going direct to the customers via its software. Marvel really hasn't been able to sell its technology in the same way. So it looks a bit dowdy and dull compared to the high flyers. And I think its share price probably reflects that. It's just not a particularly inspiring business at this particular point in time. Yeah, not um, to mention its revenue. But yeah, it's a modest, modest sized company. It's modest not a, sized yeah. company, but also, yeah, but it is competing and, uh, you know, it seems to be doing okay. Well, $48 billion in market cap. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's as big as Dell, right? Almost just, as big as Dell. <laughs> just to give you a perspective, Broadcom is $380 billion, So, just to give you a sense. <laughs> Another <outside>. galaxy. <laughs> Another galaxy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. All right, that wraps up uh, the news portion of the show. Stick around. We've got a Tech Bytes conversation with Pliant on its network automation platform that's coming right up. Network automation takes a variety of forms from individual scripts that handle specific tasks to workflows that have to be orchestrated across multiple devices and systems. Uh, today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we talk with sponsor Pliant about its automation platform. Pliant helps you orchestrate across devices and domains with a low-code approach that uses APIs to automate and orchestrate across your infrastructure. Our guests to introduce us to Pliant and what it can do for your network automation initiatives are Philippe Vincent, CEO, and Dave Hegenbarth, VP of Sales Engineering. Uh, Philippe and Dave, welcome to the podcast. And Philippe, can you start us off with the elevator pitch on Pliant and what you do? The first challenge that uh, uh, Pliant helps you address, I think uh, the, the main challenge to automating network operations is really about solving the problem of uh, bringing coding knowledge and comp competency into uh, into the network engineering discipline. We just saw that that network automation forum. That's really one of the one of the key challenges. Now, Pliant itself is essentially an integrated development environment for engineers. Uh, it's there to make it simpler for and faster and more productive for engineers to, to build automation code and integration code. And the way we do that, there's some of the things you just mentioned, we're low code. So uh, users drag and drop uh, and they connect function blocks in our product, which means they can focus on the, the business logic or the, the logic of their workflows as opposed to the syntax. Uh, we're also API first, which means our preferred method for connecting and controlling uh, network environment is through APIs. And every API that our customers may need is fully represented in our product. So they drag mm -hmm. and drop that into their um, their workflow environment. So that sounds like a really modern approach. What we're seeing then is that client is taking the API first, low code, that most of the software that you use is the same across all networks but it's the business usage of the technology that varies between customers. Is that a fair statement? 
Yes, we want to uh, bring our customers' environment at their fingertip in our development environment so that they can they can build the code they need and their world is entirely supported in our product. I mean, it's it's all well and good to be, you know, finger-banging the keyboard to get your Python scripts just right, but sometimes you've just got to get the job done and using a, a you know, set of tools to do that for you is way more efficient. Um, Dave, did I get that right as well? You did. We designed the product really to allow people to accelerate that automation journey without having to have deep development skills. And that's all why it's wrapped around low code, no code. Yeah, a lot of network engineers are uncomfortable about uh, coding. So can you say more about what low code actually means? How much coding is actually involved in using client? Yeah. So you have to have a certain understanding of a basic programming skills, like what variables do, what loops and, and if statements and evaluations are. But we take away having to understand the complex syntax of Python or Node.js. And even uh, we make it simpler than the YAML you would find in Ansible playbooks. You simply are dragging and dropping a series of steps to make the automation possible. I think this also, you know, this idea that APIs work, but each vendor has their own APIs, but all the APIs do the same thing. So having someone manage the APIs for you and reduce them to the same thing gets a repeatability about consuming the APIs? It does. It also it relieves them of the task of making sure they have the most current API and mm -hmm. the platform right. is self-documenting. So they bring we bring the API documentation along with it. If you're writing scripts, you'd have to go find that somewhere in the internet. Yeah, and I think that API management aspect is key because if you are using APIs to do your automation, trying to keep up with any changes or new APIs uh, across a variety of devices could be a real pain. It is, and I want to make sure that our, our listeners understand it's not just APIs. We do support legacy SSH and Telnet because there are those legacy devices that don't have APIs, and we mm -hmm. don't want to leave those out. I just call SSH an API. It's a CLI API. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can't we can't say it's not an API because it is. In a, but it's not an efficient API. It's not a, a a a performant API, and it's not a reliable API compared to you know the other types of you know the REST or you know whatever SOAP or YAML or so forth that we're using. So it's but it's what we use. It's sometimes it's the only way we've got to use. So we need to be able to support that. Absolutely right. I mean, one of our best use cases is device lifecycle management, and that breaks down into day zero or day one. Um, day zero, we support you know not only SSH, but NetMiko, things like Napalm, and we also support things like Jinja templates, right? So I, I need, there's always going to be day zero differences. Management IP is different. VLAN might be different, but the golden config, that config you want to distribute repeatedly to every site is going to be the same, and we support that. We make it easy to build out those sorts of workflows to do that. Okay, so let's then dive into a use case. And I guess since you brought up uh, device management, device provisioning, can you talk about you know how I would use Pliant to do things like my day zero provisioning and then going into day one and day two? Absolutely. Without a visual, it's a little tough, but the, we have these drag and drop blocks we build to help you do that, right? So the, all those steps that you're going to do around validating the device has the right IP address, right? whether it has the right version of code, all the things you might want pre-deployment uh, uh, we're able to pull those into a series of visually attractive blocks um, that allow you to do those steps. So you've actually got an, it sounds like you said this attractive block. So this actually sounds a bit like an IDE, an integrated development environment where I'm actually going in and a lot of the capability, like the documentation, the visual interface and all that sort of stuff is actually prepared or optimized for me. 
Absolutely. A lot of times when I, I present this to developers who have been coding all their lives, um, they have their favorite IDE. It changes some of that text, you know, different colors to represent things. And you can see the very likeness over in, in client, but it's represented as a full UI where you can see the loops and the trees that you would use rather than just changing colors to indicate certain things. Uh, and this provisioning, uh, I assume, you know, I can bring a device on board, but then can I get it to get an IP and and, and install configuration, that kind of thing? How, how deep can I get here? Well, I think if we go back to the IDE for a minute, Pliant is a development platform. So whatever steps you have in your process today, we can replicate those programmatically. So the answer is yes to, to what you just said, but we're going to do that through a series of drag and drop blocks. And then we can continue on with day one and day two, right? We can always go back and evaluate the, the status of that device um, through any of those methods to figure out if it's uh, compliant. Uh, a lot of times when we talk about day one, day two, uh, we interact with other technologies, which is another great thing about Pliant. Um, we support just a broad width or uh, breadth of vendors. Uh, so maybe we go to something like ServiceNow and we check what the the actual versioning of the things should be. And then mm -hmm. we check the field switches themselves and try to fix that automatically. And can I use this for you know managing config drift or updating uh, network OSs, for example? Absolutely. Yep. So we want to store those golden configs somewhere. It could be in GitHub, could be in, you can even use ServiceNow for this. We've seen customers do that. And then we want to weekly, monthly, whatever, review our groups of switches and routers and things like that to make sure they're running the correct configs, that the, the config is not drifted, things like that. Absolutely. That's a security feature as well as, you know, as well as a, a dark overlord of the network. Yes. <laughs> because, you know, yeah. But I mean, that's increasingly that config drift and configuration is now a security. And increasingly, it's also becoming an insurance issue because insurance companies are saying, I need you to know what's actually going on. And if the network changes, it becomes an auditing thing. So are you adding auditing functionality and capabilities in there? We really are. Let's go back to the IDE, right? We're a very mm. easy to use development platform. So if that's the right. direction you want to take client, uh, you, you are welcome to do that. Uh, we, right. we have some samples, but you're, you're the ultimate driver of how that automation or orchestration is going to look like. Right. And so the same thing would apply to asset management and configuration management. You, you do, That's all the natural function of your platform. It's just a question of getting some automations together or some orchestrations together that would do that for me. It could, it's my choice. Absolutely. And, and it'll bring us back to, you know, the breadth and width of the Pliant platform. Another thing that our customers use us for is trying to determine uh, a source of truth. I, you know, I always joke, one of our largest customers, I asked them, how many sources of truth do you have for the network? And they said, nine. And I said, how do you have <laughs> nine sources of truth? Um, you know, and arguably pro proponents of the network would say the network itself is the source of truth and the database is simply the representation of that source of truth. Um, but because we support so many different technologies, so many different databases, so many asset management systems through our API integrations, we're able to uh, really pull together a list for them. And then we go to something like um, Infoblox and we see, hey, Infoblox, do, did you really hand out an IP address to this particular device? Because mm -hmm. it's probably one of the closest sources of truth, right? Right. So let's uh, go through a second use case if we could. I'm thinking something like you know VM creation, which is a, a fairly standard task in an organization. Uh, that does require some work on the back end for network engineers. You know, you've got to add it to the network. It needs an IP address. It needs observability. Maybe there's firewall rule changes that need to happen. How does um, 
Pliant, help me with that task. Absolutely. I mean, part of the intellectual property of Pliant is our ability to pull in any API. So we support all the different firewall platforms. And if we don't support that platform, you're allowed to submit a ticket to us as part of your subscription. And you will we will get that API in there. So you have those drag and drop blocks to uh, to actually provision that. Uh, we started a, a, a number of years ago we'd ask a team, you know, how long does it take to actually create a virtual machine? And they would say, uh, you know, eight or nine days. And everyone at the table would object to that, right? Like it only uh-huh. takes a minute to get an IP. It only takes five minutes to spend it up. But the handoff of that ticket prior to doing automation was, you know, there were gaps all the time. And we have the ability to interact with either cloud or, or something on-prem like uh, VMware OpenStack. We have the ability to go get it put it in the right network, give it the right IP, generate the right DNS name, and you know, get that lodged into InfoBlox or some tool like that, put it in a, a CMDB because it's now a corporate asset. And then we mm. can put it in whatever you use for observability, right? Your monitoring platform as well. Right. I think that's, you know, calling out the basic difference between automation, which could be sort of, you know, single use scripts and orchestration, which is I have to do a series of tasks across a variety of platforms or domains, and they have to happen in the right order at the right time. And we go back to that visual representation, right? It all looks the same. So it's no longer I have to have one guy coding to to this technology and someone else coding to that and try to stitch those together. They can all live in that workflow. Yeah, I was thinking about these days when you put a rule into an application firewall, you also have to go and tell the scene. And then you might have to go to some third-party service and tell the third-party, you know, nowadays we export a lot of records off. Uh, I'm thinking about companies who have external socks and things like that. There's just so much configuration work that happens these days that would really improve from automa- from orchestration, just being done automatically. Add a rule, all these other things happen. Access lists get updated, firewall configs, scene devices, and so on. And then you add in something like chat ops, right? Making sure that gets echoed back so the whole team knows that this is going on. I mean, there are two fears we've seen in the automation world. One is blast radius, right? How many devices will my automation affect? The other is just... The, the lack of visibility of automation, right? Like, how do I know it worked? How do you know, Dave, that that's going to work every day? Um, you know, once you've done it for a little while, it becomes almost second nature. You know, when it fails, you're just absolutely shocked. But to get started, a lot of times people need to to understand that this is going to work for them. I want to I wanna challenge you on something. Uh, as part of the prep, I was, you know, studying up on the product. And you're saying here uh, on your website, maximum turnaround for a new API is just 15 days. Oh, that's a big claim. How how are you doing that so quickly? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, it's part of our intellectual property. And we, we've designed a series of parsers and scrapers and things that allow us to take different API documentation sources. I mean, Open API is super, super simple, but we have SOAP parsers and HTML documentation parsers. We have the ability to parse and bring in the API endpoints themselves in those blocks and also the documentation that the vendor will supply right along with it so that when you want to build that workflow, everything you need to do is right there. And are you able to expose these workflows or playbooks? I don't know how do you refer to them. uh, uh, Sort of like a catalog for a network engineer to come in and say, I need to do X, Y, and Z task. Oh, here's the, you know, the, the, the workflows I need to run. We are. We uh, very much like Ansible has Galaxy. We have a, a library, a site called hub.pliant.io that you can go and see those sample ones. Mm-hmm. Um, as I build workflows, they can become part of the Pliant library that others can use uh, very easily. Okay. So if I built a workflow, and I think it's good. I can share it with other client users. 
Absolutely. You can. Huh. Not only that, we have two other features in the in the application. One is a full-on API gateway. So right after you drag and drop those blocks without writing a single line of code, you can publish your automation as an API endpoint itself through the API gateway. And again, without writing any lines of code, we also have a small UI in there. So if you want to publish it as a tile that someone pushes, you know, I need to update something. I, I want to just push a tile. I'm not programmatic. You can do that as well. Um, so my my thinking about this is that I would use this on-prem, but can I also use it uh, since you're API driven in the public cloud to you know run automations in the public cloud? Oh, absolutely. Yes. So, you know, we're talking about VM creation and we don't really care whether that's on-prem VMware OpenStack or if that's Azure, AWS, GCP, um, because we are API driven, really where that workload lives, it, it, we we have the blocks, the API endpoints and the automation to build whatever you want. Okay. And speaking of cloud, is this delivered as SaaS? Is this something that I run on-prem? How is it deployed to me? We can deploy either. So we can deploy on-prem, we can deploy in the cloud or a hybrid model where we have the what we call remote workers that get delivered on-prem. They connect back uh, via SSL to the cloud is in the hybrid model. Uh, so you can set it up however you need to for the environment you're, you're working in. Okay, so one last thing before we wrap. Um, you know, folks are sort of concerned about automation running wild. So is there any kind of... Uh, control over the system regarding which engineers get to use uh, specific automations? Absolutely. So we are a full-on platform for development, and we have very granular role-based access control. Oh, okay. uh, that can drive all the way down to an API endpoint itself. So a lot of times when you're dealing with endpoints or APIs, uh, API security will allow you either all or nothing. With inside the client platform, you can limit engineers to just list this or create this, but not delete something. Uh, it brings up one more thought of mine just as we close out. Um, you can actually bring your own scripts and control those via the role-based access. So what I mean by that is uh, you can okay. bring your playbooks. You can bring your Python scripts. You can bring your PowerShell. Those will fit right into a block. So you don't have to rewrite the current automation you have to fit inside a low-code platform. Hmm. Yeah, it's okay. smooth onboarding, smoother onboarding. It means you can come from where you are and get to where you're going quite quicker without having to throw everything away or stuff. Absolutely. I'd never argue that drag and drop is faster than the stuff you've already written. <laughs> so yeah, but it's folks... faster than the next stuff you're going to write. That's the, that's the key. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Dave, if folks want to get more information then about Plant, where should they go? Yeah, you can come find us at pliant.io slash packet pushers, uh, or we're on the web. We also have a YouTube channel as well. Okay, that's pliant.io slash packet pushers. Uh, we'll also have other links in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Uh, thank you, Dave, and thank you, Philippe, uh, for joining us, and thanks to Pliant for being a sponsor. As always, thank you for being a listener. If you like this episode, there are many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog and our free Slack channel. It's all at packetpushers.net. Uh, you can hear us on Spotify, and if you would, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.